0: So, forewarning, I started listening through to this episode, and there are some very kind of randomly staticky parts, and I I genuinely don't know why, but I speculate it has to do with the
1: power settings, because I was recording, as I do as a genius,
0: Galaxy Brain, on a laptop that was not plugged in. I am so sorry. This has not been an issue before, but life has a way of bringing us all new challenges, especially lately. So apologies again, and uh, hopefully it's not too, too bad. I didn't really do a whole lot of heavy editing here, so I'm not going to edit those parts out. It is a bit
1: obnoxious, though, so if you come across one and you're like, this is too much. I'm not going
0: to fault you. I think this was uh, an experimental work. Not my best. But definitely interesting to do. And
1: painful to listen to. Because I was hand-holding my microphone. And
0: yeah, I'm not I'm not that great when I have a mic in my hand. I'm used to it. Well, I'm used to the mic on the stand. You know, that's just... That's just my brand. Stand brand hand, you know, because those those peaches got canned. That that's the the lost. I'm done. Okay, here we go. Here's the the original original intro recorded before and and the whole thing. Go. Hey everybody, Mark T. It guy here, dad, and generally bad movie nerd,
1: and. This is um, this is a different movie. I've talked about American Graffiti, and this movie has actually double featured with American Graffiti. Is often compared to American Graffiti, and shares a stunt vehicle with American Graffiti, or a vehicle, right? But I think that these comparisons are flawed, or not flawed, but they're definitely uh, to contrast, not to compare so much. And I think that a, a better comparison would be Easy Rider. And as we are living in a post-Easy Rider America, that is um, definitely a phrase that I've seen probably in a magazine at some point, but I, I love it. So I just say post-Ex-America for a lot of things. You know, because as a movie lover, I am both shallow and pedantic, if you can dig uh, that reference.
0: But this movie, uh, I talked about how movies that I really, really like and movies that I think are very perfect are
1: fully aware that they are movies and they use the medium of the movie almost completely, even so much as to have you in on the joke with it or or the wink at the camera or, or whatever the case is. But this movie is not a documentary, but almost diametrically opposite, still in the the spectrum of narrative fiction movies and I use the, the word narrative kind of loosely uh, but I use it in the way of like prose, prose versus uh, journalist, journalistic. I, I say prose right because it is definitely prose. It is definitely a movie but it is made as if it were not a movie. So this is a pretty famous almost unmovie. If T-Mobile were to sponsor it, it would be the unmovie. But T-Mobile was not
0: around in 1970... Shit. Shit, 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 shit. 1971, I want to say. Yeah, 1971. T-Mobile was not around in 1971. And I don't know that Jean LaGuerre would, uh... Jean the War would, um... Would sponsor this. Because I don't
1: think... It would do, I don't think it would do box office. It really super didn't
0: uh, when it came out and there was reasons, but the movie that I'm talking about does not even have, well, it has
1: exactly one named character. Exactly one. And he's named after his car. And the cars in this movie are characters. And this is ostensibly a car movie or a road movie. But maybe one that car guys don't like because it's just too fucking in there and out there kind of at the same time. This movie is Tulane Blacktop. Directed by Monty Hellman. Written by Rudy Wurlitzer. And uh, Will C- Corey, I believe, wrote the original screenplay and Rudy came in and, and Rudyized it. And based on this information, I will be seeking out some of Rudy Wurlitzer's uh, actual work. He's still alive today. But I'm watching the Criterion DVD that comes with some
0: really good stuff. Comes with a screenplay. Comes with, you know, some essays and four words, if you will.
1: But it also comes with a complete disc of extra features, which are featurettes, uh, documentary type, with Monty Hellman, with James Taylor, with Chris Christopherson at one point, Um, because the movie does feature one of his songs. And with some of the producers. So um, buckle up. Buttercup, right? Buckle up buttercup is that that I feel like somebody said that somewhere. I'll look that up. So buckle up, strap in, put it in first, rev it up till the valves float, drop the clutch. Right now, because this is thematically, right? And yes, you know, thematically, a very naturalistic recording. I am sitting outside in my yard. It is windy. It is noisy. And I'll, I'll do my best to make it listenable. But I'm having a coffee. And as you can tell from the insane volume of like vehicle noise, at least that I'm hearing, maybe you're not. The roads are really busy. Uh, It's been a lot more quiet the past couple times that I've been outside, so I thought that this was going to be different, but that doesn't seem to be the case. But let's talk about Tulane Blacktop. Let's talk about how it was an immense, immense failure in the box office. Let's talk about why. Uh, Part of why monty hellman kind of uh outlines in on the road again Uh, i believe it's called on the road again a two-lane blacktop kind of retrospective which is on the criterion collection second disc where he uh is driving along with some of his uh, film students and they're essentially filming this documentary with him and his daughter's driving the car and she's in the movie and um They're driving through locations that they use for the movie. I think they're going to, like, Needles, California or something like that, which is kind of where they do that first stop. And um, they asked them some questions. They're in the car. They're filming in the car, and they asked them some questions. And I, I think that the documentary was very competently executed. It feels good to watch. It's, like, maybe 30, 40 minutes. And one of the questions they asked them was kind of about, about the studio. And how that went, and it went very poorly. And there is... Hmm, there's a lot of details in this that I don't want to kind of get into, but I think the, the summary of it was politics, right? The summary was politics. It was primarily about the way that studios will kill or studio executives, I should say, right? Studios as a byproduct will kill a project to be like, see, I told you it wasn't going to work. So they had zero advertising for the movie. The movie was expensive to make, right? And it uh, it made no money, like none. The movie was... was He was initially trying to get it made for like 1.2 mil. I mean, this is 1970 money, right? This is 1970 money, so it's a lot more. But he was trying to make it for 2 mil or 1.2, 1.4, 1.5. He ended up getting accepted for 950. He turned it in at 875. But there was no advertising, none whatsoever. It didn't make that money back obviously it has become a cult classic if you haven't heard of two lane blacktop i'm I'd, I'd be genuinely surprised if you haven't seen it i'd also be surprised if you are somebody who i guess strongly pursues uh, film or you know cinema studies because it is it is a very unique movie and it was made in a time that it could be made it could never be made now but you know the movie was kind of sold as like a, a cross-continent race or whatever the case is cross-country race but it's not that like that's what happens but that's not necessarily the story of the movie if you could dig it and studios and, and marketing and things like they didn't know what to do with it you know like the posters were like adventure you know the adventure starts here that kind of thing like you'd want to You'd want to read it like that. Like James Taylor is the driver. Warren Oates is GTO. Lori Bird is the girl. Dennis Wilson is the mechanic. Tulane Blacktop is the picture. And I, I totally burped on that one. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going to leave it in here, right? So remember when I said thematically, right? Monty Hellman definitely talks about how he makes movies. And he also has a chat with James Taylor, which was wonderful. And, uh. He kind of says, you know, James Taylor's like, you know, I never wanted to see the picture, you know. Um, In his voice, he still sounds kind of the same, and that's beyond charming, I would think. But, you know, Monty Hellman's like, you were were perfect because, you know, and Dennis Wilson was perfect too. Like, Dennis just forgot that there was a camera, and he just, like, started interacting as he would, you know, And, and we picked you. He picked James Taylor basically seeing... A billboard of James Taylor's new album in LA. James Taylor. Oh God. James Taylor, um, a voice actor, uh, not a voice actor, a singer, a folk singer, if you will. Uh, pretty handsome dude. Pretty handsome dude, but not an actor. And he really calls it so, it's like, I've never been an actor. And when you watch the movie, you know that James Taylor's not an actor. However, you will see that he gets better as the movie goes on because the movie was actually shot sequentially for geographic consistently, consistency. They moved west to east as they filmed the movie. I think they ended up somewhere around South Carolina, uh, which is kind of where the movie ends up. And it's really interesting to see that evolution. Uh, Dennis Wilson, drummer of the Beach Boys, right? famously, he's just in it. Like, he forgets. Um, I think it's one of these things where he doesn't ever think it. He doesn't think about it at all, really. And and he goes in, and, and Lori Bird, I think this was like her first movie, and maybe she was the only person that could have played that part. A lot of the characteristics of the character of the girl played by Lori Bird are characteristics of Lori Bird very specifically. And of course the wind is kicking up now, but... James Taylor's not an actor, and he kind of, you know, confesses to Monty Hellman after not seeing him for, like, 35 years. You know, as it is, big city, big town, everybody's busy. That can happen. And Monty Hellman was like, you know, perfect, I know, right? The best way to act is don't act. And then he says, that's how I direct. Like, the best way for me to direct is I don't direct. And I'm just like, oh, my God, right? Because the movie is obviously directed, um... It is directed it is a movie it is crafted it is composed everything is is put in its place whether it's found or happenstance you know and it works out or it was carefully selected and there are different types of directors there are some who will select every iota and there's some who kind of find things on the day and maybe there's a bit of in between and as monty hellman's like oh i you know i don't direct i think he's more in between leaning towards happenstance uh, and in this respect I feel that the movie is similar to American Graffiti where where George Lucas just wanted kids young kids to live in the moment to be themselves so you know that's kind of the the interesting takeaway of that so James Taylor's not an actor he flubs lines terribly. I'm sure they did a few takes and you know he picked maybe the most natural ones in the edit. There were other scenes in the edit that didn't make it into the movie. And um you know Monty again uses the phrase that I used called uh he says, you know, kill your darlings, kill your babies. But he says that they detracted from the momentum of the movie, the the propelled nature of the movie. The movie the movie's conceit, right? Is that there are two vagabonds. Kind of race race vagabonds, if you could do that. Drag race vagabonds, which is maybe a lifestyle that seems very romantic uh, at jump. Especially, like, I think so. I, I thought for a very long time that being a drag race vagabond would be very cool. But I also need, like, health insurance and a mailbox to, you know, receive medication that I, I need to live. So, you know details. But uh that's that path is essentially closed off for me. But they were race vagabonds and they had what they affectionately call as the Chevy, which is in the credits built as the car. And the Chevy is a not quite traditional hot rod hot rod, but it is a 1955 uh Chevrolet, you know, like 150 or 210 kind of sedan, right? You know, the 55, 56, 57 would be the tri-fives, and the 55 is what Bob Falfa drives in American Graffiti, and one of the cars from Tulane Blacktop got painted black and, you know, got a a different hood on it and became Bob Falfa's car in American Graffiti in 1973 because it was already ready to go, you know, crated up and caged out and all those things. So they have this this car with a, a 454 in it, right? Or at least that's what they say. But the car is very, very fast. It sounds very loud. It sounds very good. It sounds very drag racy. And their whole thing is that they kind of just go around and they make money racing, right? So they set up, you know, races for money. And, you know, they kind of illustrate to you uh, when they actually talk to the writer of the screenplay, w- Rudy uh, Wurlitzer, they con him into racing them. They see that he's got like a, a little bit more of a flash hot rod and he's kind of like an older dude, so they they get him, you know, they they hook him in. They're like they neg him, And he's like, Yeah, whatever, you know, and that's a great line where they're like uh you know they they kinda of like he's like, gee mister, you know, fake kind of sincerity. Uh James Taylor, who's the one who sets up all the races, who kind of emotionally manipulates uh these these men into racing and they are all men right and I think that there's definitely things in there and thematically that go into it but um and just from experience most of the street race drag race scene is is men is guys uh just stating observational fact on that one most not all and he says you know gee mister that's real nice you know not bad for homegrown is what he says and that's like a like a try it mean means it looks shitty it looked like you did it yourself and their car their car looks shitty it's primer gray it's got negative interior you know it is solely dedicated to conveying them to a race racing and then conveying them to another race it's not fit for for any other thing than that and at one point they um No, so after that, you know, he's like, well, you know, what will it cost? He's like, "Uh, it'll blow your doors off. And, you know, James Taylor's like, what will it cost to find out? He's like, 50 bucks. Remember, 1970, 50 bucks is not an insignificant sum of money. And uh, James Taylor responds with one of the coolest fucking burns. He goes, make it three yards, motherfucker. And I believe we have ourselves an automobile race. Uh, Three yards is not $900. It's 300, I would assume. A yard being 100. A hundo stack, Hundy P, you know. But make it three yards, motherfucker, and I believe we have ourselves an automobile race. Is one of the greatest lines in in cinema, I think, because he knows that he hooked the guy, and the guy knows that he's hooked, and he's just jumping in there, but in for a penny, in for a pound, right? Because he sought out this character with so much bravado, right there. He's like eating a chili dog at the the car hangout, and he's like kind of center stage, like, you know, main peacock, if you will, peacocking. My sinuses are are just turbo crazy, but again, this is kind of naturalistic. I don't know if I'll edit out any of my snorts or what. We'll see how the, if the the bird lets me get, (laughs) deal with this continuity, but then maybe I'll just do hard edits because that's also in a way, in 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 and of itself, naturalistic, but it's a really cool dynamic between these characters the driver and the mechanic only up until like well into the movie only talk about cars there's no dialogue for a good a good part of it you know um so after that race where they they get the money from the the green ford from rudy werlitzer uh james taylor i think they already met the girl at this point but James Taylor heads out and yeah, they picked her up already because Dennis Wilson drives the car back to their motel with the girl and James Taylor's like, I'll walk back. And he starts hitting up bars. And the girl is also a vagabond. And she basically just um, at a diner that they're at, she puts all her stuff in their car and they, they get into their car and they say nothing. And they just accept that she's there, you know. And she's very young. So it's just, it's a weird situation to be in. You know, it's very atypical. To have a, a young woman just appear in your car with a bag of stuff. And that's like, you know, that's like um, red flags for me. I'm I've lived my life trying to avoid drama like that. So I avoid it. I, I just stay away. Not like Enya. I don't sail away. I stay away. But they kind of go on and they, they get that race. But they have a little bit of a dialogue with her. And she's like, where are y'all headed? Dennis Wilson says, east. Right. James Taylor has said nothing to her, I believe, at all. And she says, that's cool. I ain't never been east. And that's like the vibe. You know, that's the vibe of the movie, basically. That's cool. I ain't never been East. So. The racist dude. Mechanic goes back with the girl. Whose whose character's name is the girl. Her name is Lori Bird, but that's not her actual name. And... They have sex in the hotel while James Taylor is kind of out of bars. And he's like, he goes into like a, I guess like a more blue collar bar. And you can tell that he doesn't, he doesn't know what to do. He's got like the long hair, right? He's um very lithe. you know, kind of pretty looking blue eyes and all stuff. He's in this beefy, beefy guy, blue collar bar. And it's just, um he doesn't seem like he fits in. But he orders a Boilermaker, right? He orders a, a shot of rye and a, and a beer, drinks that up, and then he heads out to another bar. And this is like a fancier, richer bar. And in there, the guy with the green Ford, which, which I think his name is Hot Rod in, in the movie, his character's name, but Rudy Wurlitzer, he's in there having an argument with like his wife or, or his girlfriend or whatever. Uh, Jacqueline, I believe he calls her at some point, And she walks out and she's just like, you're always thinking about yourself and all this stuff. And I guess, you know, she's really salty. That dude lost like 300 bucks on a race, even though, you know, the timing and things like a guy that old being out that late, I don't know, whatever. I'm not going to dig too deep into it. Maybe that his, maybe they find the people whose life revolves around racing cars, which is definitely a, a, a thing. It's a vibe. It's a mood. I've met those people. I've known those people. I've, I've, You know, I'm friends with those people, although I don't really contact them that much because I don't go out and have a family now. I make a podcast now. (laughs) I got to be up awful early in the morning, so I don't do that anymore. But maybe he finds those people to race against because he knows that they are so eager and so desperate to prove themselves in a way that it it justifies their identity or you know to, to, to get that validation that you know that satisfaction maybe and in a way I think it's just the racing I don't even know that they need to win that gives them life or that gives them purpose um I think the driver and the mechanic are one step further than this, in that they don't have these identities that they're trying to validate. They are the car, right? They are the race. That is their sole purpose. They're like the Swiss Swiss Swisself. All they know is guitar, you know? That's all they can speak in. Swiss Swisscar Swisself is um, one of the guitarists in Metalocalypse, and... There's a, a good episode where they try to get him to talk about something that isn't guitars, and it's, it was very funny. But I think they're that tier where even like as people, they maybe are not fully fleshed out. Or they chose not to be. But anyway, Jacqueline runs out, and the driver gives Hot Rod like a look. And Hot Rod's just like, I, I, I know. You know, I don't know. Like, they have this connection there where I think that they understand each other pretty well. And I don't know. I don't, I, I want to, and this is maybe also a theme of the movie. Things are not explicit. Things are implicit, subtextual, and you, you read into it as you will. And that can change for different people some motorcycles racing. Maybe it wasn't a motorcycle, but it sounded like a motorcycle. Just slow. So maybe just a loud exhaust on a motorcycle who's not going too, too fast. And an airplane. A prop plane of all things. But, yeah, the subtext there is like, They don't understand, maybe, they being women or whatever kind of point is being made there. And that, I get that, you know, I've seen that too. I've seen that side of that person. But. The movie continues on. The movie continues on, inevitably westward. And we've seen, I think already at this point, GTO. And GTO is played by Warren Oates. And Warren Oates is a weird, weird, weird dude. He's really, really weird. And he was like a an actor in westerns and stuff like that. He's like probably the only actor in the movie, if you can dig that. So, he plays GTO, and GTO, you see him, like, with a different passenger, and he's driving a GTO. He's driving, like, a 1970 GTO Judge, I believe. Uh, Let me look that up. GTO 2. But I think it's a GTO Judge, which is, like, the top, top of the line, you know, kind of a... Package. It's not a judge. The judge said the judge on it. Thankfully it's not a judge, but it's a, a 70 GTO 455 uh, Mark IV Ramair, right? So it's got the nostrils on the hood, the, the kind of the Pontiac beak, you know, double headlights. It probably had air conditioning and, and all the options, probably had the three fifty-five rear and all that, right? Because his character is I don't understand. I I think I understand. Um, but he's like um, very, kind of like the plague in hackers. He's very Dickensian almost. He's he has like a a velvet like jacket, you know, lambskin driving gloves or calfskin driving gloves that are incredibly soft leather, at least by the look of them, and like a cravat. And he's kind of like a uh, slimy. Like um like think of a really bad used car salesman, but worse. Right? He's a slimy guy with like kind of fancy wardrobe and that's just like the, the visual aspect of him, and War Notes has a, a specific look. He's got like this big mouth, like these big teeth, this big smile that is unsettling. Like it doesn't when when he smiles at you, you don't feel reassured, you feel worried at best. And, um yeah, it's really unusual, and he's picking up hitchhikers, and he's driving balls to the wall everywhere. He's driving full tilt at all times. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause here just to check that my levels aren't all fucked. This will be naturalistic, so I don't think I'll redo any of this, but I'm going to pause here on GTO. So, he's driving balls to the wall, and we get the the real idea that GTO is not okay. He has zero chill. When we meet him, he picks up some fucking cowpoke. Uh, when we finally, like, really get to talk to him, he picks up some fucking cowpoke, and he's telling people that he was testing jets out in Bakersfield. Can't keep the same high forever, right? Like, he has, like, um. he's talking about how cool... The GTOs, nineteen seventy GTO four fifty five, you know, like that's like his jet on the ground. Literally, he's like a walking advertisement. He is an, he's the embodiment of maybe consumer culture in a way. Um, think of Neil Gaiman's American Gods. How you have these these gods that are dwindling, but they are characters that embody the themes of their, the deity that they are. And he's like the deity of of commercials or commercialism or commercial culture, right? And the 70s was a weird time where things were kind of flipping up and, you know, like synthetic things were better and everybody's wearing fucking, uh, you know, polyester everything. And, and he has these kind of, yeah, it's a whole thing. and he talks one dude straight to sleep and he starts going over the script again looping over like if it's like an idle animation like if he's a an NPC like if he's not a real person inside and this is like the craziest thing you know as if he was practicing it, if it as if it was a script and I've also met people like that where they um, at least socially don't have that function and they kind of just stick to the same basics over and over and over. But, um, you know, he crosses paths with the Chevy a couple times, and he passes them, then they pass him, that kind of thing. And he tells somebody, he's like, they've been chasing me for three states. Some kind of small-town car freaks, that's what they are, you know? And it's just everything that he says is to make him seem better to make his life seem great he makes up stuff about family he makes up stories about everything you know like the driver and the mechanic they make up nothing but they really only fully speak in in facts like oh this you know this gearing is better oh that Plymouth got you out of the hole you know like It's basically only about cars and about the races and about the realities of their thing. You know, how much money do we have? We got, uh, you know, 300 racing bread, 20 to eat kind of thing. And the girl even goes kind of panhandling at one point. I guess to kind of raise some money up. Maybe to get a race or just to get herself something to eat because she's not really part of the team right now, right? She's not part of the race team, so she might be on her own dime. But 300 racing bread and 20 to spend. We're we're factually seeing the ratio of what the fuck they care about, and it's like they care about eating less than they care about racing by a good margin. But yeah, you know, the girl also, after a stop, she's like, hey, why can't I ever sit up front? You know, is this some kind of masculine power trip? And, you know, the driver and the mechanic ignore her. And the mechanic's like, oh, the rear end's uh, acting up or whatever. And she's like, no one's paying attention to my rear end. And is she a a stereotype or a model or an archetype for, like, the young American girl, the young American teen? Are they... The young American boys, um, are they in conflict with the older, established, like, money-having institution, the boomers, so to speak, even though everybody's technically kind of a boomer in this movie, except for the older people? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's really a weird movie and there's a lot of ways that you can see this. Um I don't say weird bad. It's weird good, but it's an art movie. This is definitely an art movie. And there's a lot of ways to look at it. It's a road movie. They they do traverse the US, finally GTO and GTO and the the boys and the girl. They meet up and they agree to a race to Washington, D.C. I think they're in Nevada or something at the time. They agreed to a race or four corners, like Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico, Arizona kind of thing. Or Utah. I don't know. I don't know states right now. But essentially to go across the street for pink slips, right? And in that, like, I don't know. We, um... They had already seen the GTO, and they already evaluated that the GTO will take him in the long run, right? He comes up, and he's beeping, and he passes, and apparently you just have to fucking beep like a maniac in 1970 to pass somebody, whereas nowadays you just fucking pass him when the passing's good. But they... I don't know if he goads them into it, or they goad him into it, or it's kind of a mutual thing. But the girl had already been like, oh, race him, you can beat him, that kind of thing. And he's like, "Not. we'll get him in the quarter mile, but he'll surely take his top end or something like that. So they understand the reality or the, the difficulty of it. But I think in doing their math, they understand that they are, they have the will and they're dedicated, right? GTO is one person racing across country. Mechanic and driver can both switch off and drive and they require no luxuries. They require nothing. They barely require eating. And they evaluate this almost like, um, if you've ever read a Batman comic where he narrates, uh, or perfect, perfect example, Sherlock Holmes movie, uh, the first one with Robert Downey Jr. Where he kind of slow motion narrates the fight that's about to happen. And then he does it right. That's maybe a Batman trope. Batman comics have done that for a long time, but it shows the forethought, the cold and critical planning of the characters And that's explained to us a little bit by the dialogue that the driver and the mechanic have. Where they talk about how they can switch off and i will probably need meths and stuff like that just just to stay awake to drive across country. Whereas they don't because they have a relief driver and so on and so forth. And it turns out that GTO does have meth. He has booze, meth, you name it. Uppers, downers, sideways, screwballs, eight balls, the whole nine. And that's kind of a better living through chemistry kind of thing. Like they don't take drugs. The driver drinks When he wins, maybe only. Mechanic doesn't. It's just, it's a whole thing. And I think the driver was just at bars drinking, looking for Hot Rod. Like, I think that was the vibe. He was trying to connect with the person that he just raced against. Trying to find that. That connection with another. Because him and the driver, uh, they make up this team, but... You know they finish each other's thoughts and they they focus and they revolve around the Chevy, but it's a it, it's weird it's so weird again weird in a good way, it's so complicated, it's so subtextual. And authenticity is huge in this movie, right? Like I said in Monty Hallman he says I don't direct. And that's why I'm doing a podcast in my yard with wind noise and car noise and birds and all the things. Because I'm not I'm not producing. I'm gonna maybe volume match and take out some sinuses snorts. But that's about it. I'm taking big sips of coffee in between lines and there's gonna be dead space. Like there's well, dead air. Right? Like, there's dead air in this movie. There's no dead visuals, but it's definitely dead air. There's precious little dialogue. Precious little. And, you know, Hellman is definitely okay with that. Because it's it's not, not even show don't tell. It's just, like, let be. I think it's his kind of mantra. Just let it be. If it was thought through with intent and will... It will communicate itself to the screen. Obviously, they make directorial choices. The way they filmed the car was actually the way they filmed not the car, not the Chevy, but every car, right? Also, the GTO is he um, he had a scheme of like twenty four different ways you could film the inside of a car, but the one that he only chose once was to film outside hood shooting into windshield. And the reason for that, he said, is that it makes you feel like you're outside of the car. Every other shot makes you feel like you're inside of the car. So you have, you know, driver door shooting passenger, passenger door shooting driver. Remember, these are film cameras. These are big honking cameras. They can't just stash them on the dashboard or whatever. But one of my favorite camera angles that they have is that he took out the rear glass, which taking out the rear glass is not all that difficult if you're skilled at it. And they did have a a mechanic, man. And I can't remember the mechanic's name right now, but he's the guy that actually built the four Chevys. They had a mechanic. So taking out glass, I've seen glass put in. It's not that hard if you're good at it, if you're practiced at it. And they had one where they would take out the back glass and put the camera on the hood, on the, the trunk lid. So you're seeing, not from outside, but maybe from the back seat, but with a wide enough angle that you see both driver and passenger and through the windshield to the road ahead. And this wasn't green screen. They actually did this on running cars that James Taylor was driving, right? And that's kind of the thing too. There's there's some, I guess, stunts, sure. And you know maybe some folks would drive the car for some of the stunts, but when James Taylor is needed to be seen driving the car, James Taylor is fucking driving that car, and that's awesome. Notably, he uh, he destroyed a car <laughs> He um, at the end in the last scene. They had set up, the, they had rolled the car back for him and stuff like that, but they had left it in reverse. And they normally leave it in first, and the way that reverse was on that transmission, I think it's a Muncie, a four-speed. Reverse is close to you and forward. So almost where first would be on most transmissions made before most American transmissions and Japanese transmissions made before like 2005. And even then. I'm starting to see the, the trend of reverse being next to first more and more often. First time I saw that or the first time I drove a car with that I think was a 2006 GTO that a friend owned. Let me drive it around the block and it fucking rocked my world a little bit. But I think that's more the trend now that reverse is next to first because if you're going to crash, at least you're going to crash trying to leave a dead stop instead of putting your engine in reverse instead of looking for six and definitely blowing it up. But they left it in reverse for, for James Taylor and he. you can't tell the difference between first and reverse on that transmission, he said. And the mechanic tells him, listen, rev it up until the valves float and then dump the clutch and it'll, it'll launch. It'll launch hard. And he's like, cool revs it up to the valve slope literally till it doesn't rev more <laughs> and he dumps the clutch but it's in reverse and the way the suspensions work is that the linkages are lined up to when the the body of the car moves backwards to kind of push down or it's it's complicated there's a concept called instant center and I haven't I haven't done this geometry or i guess trigonometry slash calculus in a bit But there's uh, angles on the suspension which will transfer force from the axle to propelling the body forward. And that only works when you're going from a stop and going forward. When you're going backwards, what happens is you get wheel hop. And wheel hop is where the tires make and break contact rapidly. So think of like antilock brakes but on acceleration. And it's kind of like the, beep, 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 beep. you know, not the not the the big peel out, but the, beep, 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 beep. and that's not good. That actually breaks things. That super breaks things. And James Taylor destroyed the rear end. The rear end just about came off the car. He said that if there would have been a cameraman in the car with him, or there was a cameraman in the passenger seat with him, but if there would have been um, the guy loading the film, he would have gotten hit by the driveshaft. The driveshaft came apart, came through the floor. You know the engine just exploded into a million pieces because at that point it's unloaded. There's nothing connected to it, and it spun itself apart. And he's just like, "Whoops! Nobody was hurt, thankfully." But yeah, don't don't rev a car up in reverse. I guess is maybe the moral of that story. And that was a that was like the race car, right? So it's got a you know big motor, honking motor, all the torque in the world, all the power. So. So yeah, that that scene that was that was very cool. That last scene, I don't know. That last scene was was definitely something else. Um, I don't know that I want to go there just just yet, though. Right. There's a lot going on. There's a. Uh, there's a relationship that that starts to bud between the girl and the driver and the driver, as the movie progresses opens up more kind of emotionally and he he actually talks to the girl more. there's a part where where she's she's thinking about running off and you know, he gives her this whole like monologue about the cicadas. their are cicadas, and he's like, "These bugs stay and these freaky bugs," he calls them. You know, talks about survival. They stay in the ground seventeen years, and they grow some some wings so they can fuck, and then they die out. But before they die, they lay more eggs. And I think that, you know, that's almost kind of like a metaphor for squares. Like if we're gonna if we're gonna call these people, they're not beatniks. They're not quite hippies uh even though that does come up towards the end of the movie they're not quite hippies they're they're definitely something else right they're not easy rider hippies they're not on drugs they are not necessarily breaking the law because they race on the street they race on drag trips like it, it's immaterial to them they are not illegal they are illegal if you can dig that they don't care uh they just don't want to get arrested in the beginning in the beginning scene, right, they they have a drag race and they actually have to run from the cops. Even though cops back then didn't really chase you too too hard, um, my friends and I lock, lock, like to talk about when street racing was legal, and it kind of goes in waves. People get hurt because the street racers they crack down really hard, and then they kind of care a little less and things like that. But don't street race, by the way. It's not it's not worth getting hurt or or hurting somebody else for. I just want to put that out there. That's definitely a a PSA. I think I say that in most of my car movie uh, podcasts, but I I genuinely mean it. It's not worth it. No cars is worth anybody's life. And if you think that, I mean, you're probably too young to to fully understand the the range and wealth of, of human life and human emotion. But... They run from the cops and they do the the trunk lid inside the car shop as James Taylor's throwing the Chevy through these dirt roads and kind of sliding the car a bit and, and hitting those those faster turn turns that they had a more a more handling car. They had four cars, right? So Yeah, it um sorry, I just got a, a text on my phone. So, it reminded me a lot. I think it, it greatly inspired the opening shot of driver of Drive, where he has the, um, I believe it's a Chevy Impala, and it's like a front driver, and it's like a, a square car, it's a nerd car or whatever, but I think those had the 5.3 liter V8 at the time, so, I mean, it could probably move at least a little bit, but, you know, for movie purposes, it worked. It was nondescript, it was, you know, big-engined, It's a perfect robbery car. And in that movie, they actually put the the camera on the bumper, right? But the same... And in Ronin, they actually put the camera on the bumper too for the, the chases through Paris and stuff like that. But with the camera inside the backseat of the car, you know, the lens is actually like in the backseat of the car kind of thing. They capture, Monty Hellman captures the same kind of energy, this... this rapid motion but you have now people to kind of put that into perspective for you the way that they move gives you a sense of how how hard the lateral you know g's are and what the acceleration's like James Taylor and, and Dennis Wilson both had long hair their hair's kind of moving around and you know the front is illuminated by by headlights i'm sure they they augmented those lights a bit for that scene but it felt so good it felt like such a perfect Driving scene, and I think that it greatly inspired, hugely inspired car movies that came after it to incorporate that type of energy, you know. But these are these are amoral folks. Um, you know, I talked about the comparisons to Easy Rider, and it's very similar. Easy Rider, they're kind of going cross country or whatever, and Easy Rider, they are 110% hippies even though one has like an american flag bike or whatever that's kind of like born in the usa almost it's a vietnam protest song and um i like top gear that they they did the scooter the usa scooter if your scooter broke when they did the vietnam thing and they would make it play born in the usa but like it's a protest song but the the lyrics you know born in the usa i guess the chorus is more like fuck you i'm american but that's not the song and even though I i don't like bruce springsteen I fully appreciate that that sentiment and his intent behind it. But Easy Riders a different animal. Like Easy Riders almost like vignettes of these uh, wandering youth. Uh, America's culture where they're like no nah, man the fucking man's got me down but they they go to a, like an extreme hippie area. They go to, like, where squares are, and they're like, we're gonna kick those fucking hippies' ass and shit like that, and they, they, they. I felt like, and I haven't seen Easy Rider in years, but I felt like they distinctly had, like, the four kind of stops, or whatever, how many stops, and those were almost like, like the, uh, Iliad, I think, right? That's a sequel to the Odyssey? Or Homer's Odyssey, maybe. Where, um, <laughs> and I must have said Armando Sante, where um, where this dude, man, this Greek dude, shit, uh, Odysseus. Yeah, there we go. Has to go and he's traveling the sirens and the thing, and then he goes to hell and all that to get his boy. So it um, it had that feeling, whereas Tulane does, but not so so much. Right, so they they get into the race. Fucking an ant on my microphone. Ant on my computer. Fuck you. I didn't kill it. I just like flicked it off. I I am not in love with insects crawling on me. But um, they go through these like stages where they interact with gto more than with like the folks like these aren't different things it's more like they're getting to know and getting to understand gto there's um there's a part where gto gets pulled over because he drives like an asshole and it's really funny because uh it's nighttime, it's dark, so you can't see how fucking boosted the Chevy is, but I'll sense you could hear it and I don't think this would have worked in real life, but I think that James Taylor his 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 piercing blue eyes and his his boyish uh boyish looks I think he uses that to his advantage as a character, right? The driver does, I uh, uh, should say. And he gets out and he's like and he's wearing a sweater. He's not dressed like a hippie. Yeah, he has long hair and shit like that, but he's not like one of these, you know, like fucking awesome dude jerk offs and he talks real plainly kind of southern and he goes over and he talks to the cops that have pulled uh war notes over he's about to talk himself out of this ticket you know and he's like oh test driving this car and blah 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 and all this shit and he's like well sir they uh, you know he passed me in the ditch you know driving real erratic driving dangerous you know do you need me to be a witness or whatever they're like no no we got this so they're definitely giving him a fucking ticket if they're not straight taking him to jail and he's like, okay. And then when he drives off, he just fucking peels out. And the cops are like, what the fuck? And it's a whole thing. And that would not have worked in life. But I think for the purposes of the movie, for the, here's you some fucking monster warped past you like that, you know that that guy's racing. You know, if you're a cop, you know that this is the case, but For the purposes of the movie, this sets up this interaction with GTO, where he comes back and he kind of stops him to the side of the road, He's like, "Get the f- pull the fuck over," kind of thing. And it's like, "What the fuck? You guys almost yeah, I had him, had him meeting with the palm of my hand, and the whole thing." And again, James Taylor totally diffuses him, and he's like, "Hey man, you know, I get it, and uh, I just want to let you know that we were still here, we were still in this race, and we're both in this together." And like, it's it's manager speech basically it's just hot manager speech it's like the bullshit that you get when your company's doing some fucking dumb shit and somebody needs to kind of talk you off the ledge of just going fuck you fuck you fuck you you're cool fuck you and doing that thing and then they uh you know gto's like i got uppers downers so on and so forth, and they, they have they have a drink by the side of the road. GTO pops his fucking trunk, and he has this little, like, display box with all his, like, liquor and stuff in it, and... I think GTO starts drinking there and, like, kind of doesn't stop. I think he takes some amphetamines as well. You know right. so you got a drink to take the edge off, or so I've heard. And... They get to the next town, and... Actually, no, this is what happens, right? Mechanic and driver start to check out GTO's engine. And I think they've kind of come to an accord at this point where, you know, GTO talks about how, well, first they find out that GTO's got like a, I think it's like a belt or like something that's going bad. And, oh, it's carburetor's leaking, right? Carburetor's leaking. And he's like, well, you're going to... Leave me behind and whatever. And it's he's talking about like the unfairness of this and you've got two drivers and it's like, listen, bro, we'll wait for you, bro, no problem. It's like, how do I know? And it's a whole thing, but they, they make it fair, right? Uh the driver or the mechanic and the girl will drive the GTO to the next service station. And uh GTO's gonna ride in the Chevy. And he's uh he's like, I've never been to one of them kind of talking down to it, right? One of them, very derogatory. But at this point, they take the opportunity to kind of race it a little bit. They do like a rolling start, no big deal. And GTO's like, whoa, you're trying to blow my mind, right? Because already he knows that, he factually knows that the Chevy is just a, a, a more powerful device. But, you know, we're also coming up on this um, hardcore drag car versus um, kind of comfortable grand touring car or gt car muscle car can i think is more than a muscle car muscle car would have been a a big cheap light car with a big motor but the gt was a big heavy expensive car at the time it was top of the line model so it's got all the bullshit in it so we're looking at comfort versus purpose in in conflict here we're looking at this commercial person versus these very spartan to use a, a very i guess appropriate word spartan Uh, people who are just kind of drifting about the world they all are actually even GTO is no one knows what the fuck GTO's real story is he's basically the inspiration for the Joker's character in The Dark Knight how he gives you two different stories and you don't know which one's true if any and neither of is probably true GTO ends up giving like four different stories in this movie and I can almost guarantee you none of them are true and he probably murdered the owner of the car and stole it who knows no one knows Literally no one does. But I think that GTO is maybe representative of being trapped in, in consumerism and commercialism and trying to figure out who he is and what he wants. And I think that the driver and the mechanic maybe figured out who they are and what they want, but then are also the drivers learning that maybe that's not all it's cracked up to be. So the driver starts to have a better relationship with the girl and the driver starts to have a better relationship with GTO they take him over to a service station the service station's closed nobody's around it's pouring rain right and the mechanic goes and steals a license plate and you know GTO's drunk and he's like I don't want to be the one from out of state right they swap for in-state license plates so he's there and he's so drunk he just falls asleep drunk kind of at the at the license plate essentially of a truck that was at the service station and he's passed out drunk the mechanics kind of hanging out but the driver takes the girl out for a drive and Or actually, she walks off, and he goes to find her, right? She took all her stuff out of the car and just walks off. He finds her trying to hitch, picks her up, and he starts showing her how to drive, how to drive the Chevy. And he's pretty chill about it, and she's kind of getting up. She's stalling the car, and and when you drive stick, you'll, first time you get in there, you'll stall the car a hundred times, but once you get it, it snaps, and, and you just get it. But she doesn't get it, and she's like, I can't do it. And he's like, sure you can, just blah, 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 whatever, whatever. And then she grinds, like, a gear, and he's like, fuck it, you can't do it. But then they have sex, right? They are opening up their relationship here. Like, he went after her and things like that. And you can really see the change of the character in his face as this goes on. And I think that he's, James Taylor, the actor, is more internalizing the plot of of this movie as time goes on, so... Yeah, it gets um. It gets down to where. They come back and, you know, people are calling the cops on them because they look like random drifters, passed out asleep, and. They take off, but they help GTO. They go get him a carb rebuild kit, rebuild this carb on the side of the road. He's still passed out drunk. And uh, they leave him there, and as they leave, he wakes up. And he's like, oh, what? But his car's fixed and he's ready to go. So they've done ostensibly a good thing for him, fairly. And, you know, the race is on. And they stop at another drag race. They need some bread. They need gas money, food money. And GTO stops with him. And GTO's kind of clowning around or whatever. And he ends up leaving without them with the girl. So they get their money, the driver, the mechanic, and, you know, mechanics like they split. And James Taylor's like, come on, we'll drive through the night. We'll catch up to him. And the mechanic has to tell him she's going to burn you. Right. The mechanic warns him. Right. So we know at this point that James Taylor is or the driver, I should say, James, the driver is so like, I guess, in love with this girl or, you know, infatuated, maybe. But some degree of this. It's a, a thing that we never thought that he could do or feel. And. Yeah, it's just a whole. It's a whole thing. He drives off. And this is about the time they're in South Carolina, I think. Something thereabouts. And. They stop at a diner. You know, he's so focused on trying to catch up that he actually passes him. You know, Dennis Wilson, uh, the mechanic, has said, We passed him five miles ago. You know, so fuck. Turns the car around, whatever, goes back and goes back into the diner, mile a minute, focused, intense. He's so intense in these scenes, right? And I think that spending spending the month on the road and things like that has, has honed, because they actually spent a month and they actually drove across the country. And he was driving that car, that, you know, very focused, very purpose machine. Like, obviously, they had their accommodations at night. And I believe that uh, James Taylor was seeing Joni Mitchell at the time. And there's a whole story behind that that I won't get into, but if you are interested, you can definitely look that up. But it has caused him to really believe... And to feel and to be that character. So he really gets into it like at the end of the movie. Hilariously enough, he starts out kind of, and he really gets into it. He really starts to understand this arc. He really starts to feel it. He's been with the girl and with the mechanic every day for a month, you know, just doing scenes over and over and over. No real script, you know, that kind of thing. And yeah, it's wild you know like they'd run sides right before filming a scene like he never saw the script in advance so it's definitely a different way to shoot a movie but a way to elicit the most natural reactions that a an actor would have almost make them not as much an actor per se or make them to act differently a more I guess method type of acting if you had thought that deeply into it but he Monty Hellman in, in, intentionally acquired non-actors so that they wouldn't overthink it but You know, nobody wants an Ed Norton over here fucking rewriting the script. It's as good as it may be, right? They want to make the movie that they want to make, and they need X actor, Y actor to kind of do what they need them to do. But they sit down, GTO, and and, and GTO's had this whole kind of monologue while she's asleep where... um, Oh, God, uh, let's see if I wrote any of this down. I don't think I did. Uh, I might have. Uh, Uh, looking 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 yeah I don't think I are writing any of the shit down but he uh he has a line famously like if I don't if I don't ground myself soon I'm gonna drift away but he he talks a whole fucking thing about he fucking his family and a bunch of shit while she's asleep and he's like we'll go go to Florida build a house you know and it's a whole thing but it's um it's basically he gives you like the American dream right build a house pick a fence homestead you know just hang out nice place idyllic while she's asleep but you know, in the diner, he's talking to her, and he's like, we go to New York. And she's like, I don't want to go to New York. We go to Chicago. You know, she's just like, mm. so she's kind of over GTO. Like, she she went with these, like, um, younger, driven, purpose-built, like, dudes with no, no accoutrement. And she had her kind of taste of that. And then she... Took a, a short ride with GTO, and she was over that really quick. But in the diner scene, she's looking at this like kid, and and she's very young. I think she's eighteen at most, right? She's very young, and there's a young guy at the counter, and he's like cooler looking. He's almost dressed like fucking Peter Fonda and Easy Rider. He's got like the you know the little dangly bullshits on his. On his jacket, and he's kind of down-home boy, blonde, you know, fair-skinned. And she's looking at him hard. And he, uh, he's leaving, and then she just walks out. She just walks out, and she goes with him. She, she goes to get on his bike, and he was waiting. I guess he knew that she was going to come out. Right? As as people kind of do in this movie, they kind of understand the subtext. And maybe this has worked for him before. But he's just waiting. She goes, she walks out, she gets her duffel bag and her other bag, and she finds that the duffel bag, nowhere to put it on the bike, and she just throws it on the ground, and she just straight leaves with that boy. Right? And It was just funny because when when the driver came back, he's like, we can go to Florida. The beaches are nice there and all this stuff. And he kind of gives her, he almost regurgitates the same thing that GTO told her last night while she was asleep. And she's not up for it, bro. She just fucking walked out, straight walked out. So that's kind of where that plot ends. And GTO and the driver are kind of both gutted by this because GTO thought that he had made a, a real connection I guess somebody who actually wanted to drive with him versus somebody in need somebody hitchhiking and um yeah I don't know it the movie kind of changes there and this is at the end but it, it just becomes quieter and and the motivation changes and everything changes and GTO and the driver and the mechanic leave and they don't say anything. I, I, I think, I don't remember. I don't think they say anything to each other, but GTO goes off and he picks up some army boys and he's like, where are y'all headed? And they say New York. And he says, well, I can take you the whole way. So he's diverting. From Washington, D.C. He's diverting from his race, right? And... He then spins them a new tale, right? He's talked about how he's testing Jets in Bakersfield, how... You know, he won the car in Vegas shooting craps... A whole thing, but he tells them that he won the GGO racing cross-country against two boys. And he gives the plot of the movie kind of as his new story, and he feels good about it. He feels emboldened by it, like he's almost had a real experience. And they kind of like it. They're like, yeah, that's cool, man. And I don't know, it's like he's usurping their, their identity uh, to be his own, to, to make him them, as if he looked up to them. And then the movie cuts over to the driver and the mechanic and the driver staging the car in that, that scene, that fateful scene where he blows up the car. That's not part of the movie. That was just a, a mistake. But but he's staging the car up at a race that looks like it, uh, a small airstrip. And normally, when we've seen him stay in stages, he's laser-focused on the race, on the racetrack, and all these things. But this time, he's looking off into the distance. There's like a barn, I think, and like some animals and some trucks. And I get the distinct feeling, I read into it very personally, that he is thinking about what could have been. What could have been. So... He then focuses back. Hey, bud. You want to talk? Yeah. Say hello. Uh. Say hello.
0: Hello? No? Yuck.
1: Okay. It's my son. He's adorable. He was focusing off on the middle distance. He wasn't paying attention. He was daydreaming. And then they bring him back in. They're like, hey, it's time to go. He rolls up his window. And you hear engines and all these things, but then when he kind of comes back in, it, the, the soundtrack actually goes silent. And we're so used to constantly hearing cars, engines, especially the Chevys. The Chevys is notably louder and more aggressive than, than the GTOs. The GTO has kind of, you know, uh, a factory exhaust versus the, um, you know, the Chevys kind of open exhaust kind of deal. And they underplay how loud that car would have been. That car would have been oppressively loud and they would have definitely had hearing damage after a bit. But the soundtrack goes silent and the film is is being cranked and we're actually in slow motion for the first time in the movie. And it's just James Taylor. He's looking out of the windshield that we're filming in, right? It's like the camera's in the car on the dashboard almost. Not looking up at him, level with his eyeline, but just in and we're very present there and he launches the car right he actually launches the car right rev it up until the valves float and dump the clutch and we see him jerk back we see and feel the inertia of this this inevitable pull backwards into into his seat his race seat which is literally like two sheets of metal um like you know the real (laughs) lightweight racing seats two sheets of metal they're very uncomfortable and then the film stops, I think, after he shifts in a second, maybe. Right? First is real short, shifts in a second, and you get the ka-chunk. Or I hear the ka-chunk in my head, but it's all slow motion. They go slower, right? To the point where your 24 frames or your 48 frames or whatever is kind of a little choppy. And it was really interesting. They filmed this in um, Panavision, I want to say? Or Technovision, Which is... Yeah, it's, I think it's Technovision. It's like a Techno, Technicolor film thing, which is half size of of a, of a frame, right? So if a frame is more square, and you get like four sprockets of of picture, uh, I think it's like thirty five mil. You get four sprockets on a picture in Panavision, you get two, so you get this really wide, frame. So that's how they have the wide frame, in in this movie. They they really use the landscapes and negative space a lot. Uh, it is, in a way, about America in a, in a lot of senses, maybe thematically, subtextually, and visually, and how they drive across it. A lot like Easy Rider, in a way. But one of the kind of side effects of this is that they had a a very wide depth of field. They had a deep depth of field where they could have, you know, more things in focus, and and that was like a more realistic thing because the way that we look at things is psychologically is, is very interesting because we actually our minds our eyes I should say um, don't really have all that much depth of field when you look at something like if you think about it you really focus on it and your mind kind of has this running tab of what's around and what it looks like and things like that and your, your brain fills it in for you but when you actually look at something you're actually looking at the thing especially when it's in foreground versus background. And this gave the film more of what we think our eyesight is like, right? Like, you never really truly think about how you focus and look at things until you start thinking about it. It's like, oh, you're breathing now. You're breathing manually now. Breathing is automatic. Looking eyesight, very automatic. It's a learned behavior. We learn it from when we're infants, basically, and we just train that up. It's like not seeing your nose. You can see your nose right now, but you don't know until you look at it, right? Right. So, in this, like, frame, it's an extreme close-up, almost an extreme close-up. It's, it's a very close-up. And he's driving this car, and you see all the cage and focus and all these things, and it's very much like you're there, but there's the, the focus, the look, the performance, which is no dialogue, no sound even. There's no sound at this point. And as it starts to slow down and starts to get choppy, you're like, the the focus doesn't change, but maybe, I don't know, like, the motivation is eroding... Or, or time is kind of wearing him down, right? Because we've seen him uh, change over just the course of a movie, which is, takes place ostensibly over a couple days, a few days, maybe a week, kind of thing, and then the the film stops, and then it burns as if it was burning in the projector, and that's the end of the movie, you know. And that that shot, that powerful shot, that the power of that silence, even it um. It stays with me. It, I think it's beautiful. I think that it's... I don't know. I just... I'm deeply in love with it. In many ways. And that's, that's the movie. Um, I don't know. There's other car movies that came out around the same time that are different and similar in same ways. Like, American Graffiti was more of a documentarian's look at the time, but it similarly had, like, uh, almost directorless acting. And there was Vanishing Point, which was maybe an existential question, but was kind of similar, where Kowalski's trying to drive a, a Challenger to, you know, San Diego or something in, like, no time, and He's on math and he cops start chasing him and that's a crazy story. Buddy, that's a shovel, don't play with that. Obviously Easy Rider's a motorcycle movie, but thematically maybe it's it's very similar. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, I'm just gonna leave it here, I guess. I'll do some some housekeeping at the end of this, but I think that lane Blacktop ultimately is the movie that you make it. I think there was definitely intent uh, behind it, but that matters not, right? We are free to interpret it as we will. And there are a lot of themes and a lot of interpretations that can be had, and I recommend watching it just to understand what this experience really is like. I didn't I didn't summarize, I didn't, you know, go through the movie very well, I kind of jumped around and and did my own thing, but, again, this is naturalistic, I'm not really producing or directing this, it just kind of is, like the movie is, um, in some regards, in other regards, you know, there was definitely a full production, and they had scripts, uh, script people, and, you know, no makeup, obviously their makeup was go out and get a tan, but script people, wardrobe people, you know, craft services, camera people, all that, whole line. So Yeah, happy happy watching I guess. This was a fun impromptu exercise. Things weren't really going my way, so instead of
0: blowing up, I, I went outside and I just recorded a podcast. Um, unprepared, but so what? No big deal. This isn't serious. It isn't the end of the world. I had a bit of fun with it. I brought out my SM58 for SM58 day, which is May 8th or 58 an American date, May the 8th be with you. This was recorded days ago, and I'm back in the lab assembling it, minimal editing because it's
1: naturalistic, so this is going by fairly quickly, but I am quite the slow editor. And as I was going quickly, there may be some mistakes. Um, I decided that now would be a good time to, to change how I do everything because ultimately I guess I didn't want to, you know, noise gate the crap out of the random noises and shit that might be happening in the background. I
0: felt that they were important and I wanted to leave them in there, so I had to do things a little differently. I didn't talk about the music though, and uh, that's a thing that generally
1: happens in the background, but the music isn't super forward in the movie. There are some environmental tracks, including Chris Christopherson's "Me and Bobby McGee," a song that I strongly dislike.
0: And there are some other, you know, folk songs and, and things like that, but it's not really a score per se GTO definitely plays some eight tracks because
1: his GTO is equipped with all the options, maybe, you know. Kind of like a department store, he has all kinds of music that you might want to listen to. I'm fairly confident that it's an 8-track. I I couldn't really find the definitive info, since apparently cassettes didn't seem to make it into Pontiacs until maybe 1971. Uh, 8-tracks were definitely there, that was definitely an option. But the history of cassette players is kind of thin on the ground, generally. I don't know, maybe GTO got the upgrade. I don't know. I don't actually recall seeing one of the cassettes, so I don't know if it is a cassette that we know and love, or if it was not A-track, genuinely unsure, and I'm gaslighting myself at this point. But the environmental sounds more underlay the movie, like the sound of cars, or, you know, more importantly, like the car, right? And I think that's what gives that real falcon punch to the ending when it goes silent, if you know what I mean. Also, slight confession... I'd never really watched a Filthy Frank video, but I did end up going and, and seeking one out because, you know, I'm a glutton, a morbid curiosity. And the one that I settled on for some reason was called Falcon Punch. And I'm, I'm genuinely shocked
0: at how chaotic it is and how someone pre-visited it. I would imagine there needed to be some to a lot of previs on this video, pre pre-visual, previsualization,
1: and that 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 someone could actually execute this with
0: forethought is just impossible to me. I sit genuinely in awe of this video. It's it's not that I liked it.
1: I didn't particularly, but the the trap wrap veneer is on top of everything, hundred percent accurate accurate, and and its
0: accuracy is it's another layer of joke, and ultimately it's an experience. Definitely not for kids, though. But
1: I guess in that I can talk about Harry Dean Stanton's character. I didn't, I didn't get to that in the show, and I wasn't avoiding it. I just I didn't really know what to make of it. Is Consumer Society GTO homophobic, or is he tolerant in a not-in-my-backyard way? You know, I think maybe that's the most straightforward way to to look at that with the assumption that my assumptions or my interpretation of GTO is or has some accuracy or substance or merit. Mild tolerance with respect to
0: proximity and with an undercurrent of disgust, I guess. And if I flubbed it, uh, the camera indeed was a technoscope. And you can check that out in the show notes,
1: I'll drop a link. I completely forgot to mention that the opening drag racing scene probably definitely inspired the opening in general drag racing scenes of the, I believe, 1991 movie Born to Run starring Richard Grieco. I have a VHS of this movie somewhere, but this is definitely a car game movie. It is a, a bit more of a hero's journey classically, and it's from the 90s, so it it looks pretty okay in a lot of ways, but um, it starts out of memory serves with a fairly organized street race, a lot like Tulane Blacktop, and it has actual cars going actually fast, which is a huge plus, and I didn't really mention this, but in Tulane, the almost complete absence of, of visual effects uh, lands at home for me. I don't really recall seeing any undercranked cameras or or anything like that, barring the, um, the last scene, which, again, just makes it all the more powerful that it was unlike the rest of the movie in every way. And I think in story, you know, and maybe in art, and, and specifically in music from Adam Neely, repetition legitimizes. And that was probably the exact opposite of what was desired for that final shot. It was meant to stand out, and it was meant to and without resolution. It doesn't.
0: It doesn't stick around long enough for us to question it further. So again, always on Twitter, at coolmarkd cool with a c and mark
1: with a k, on Letterboxed as Mark D twenty. Still not rating movies on letterboxed. Letterboxd. I don't. That's still still weird to me.
0: Sometimes I wonder if I even actually exist and I'm sorry about telling you about Falcon Punch unless you enjoyed it or or we're just like holy shit, that's a thing
1: if it changed you, as art should, it succeeded and it it definitely changed me To tell you about
0: one of my favorite characters in the movie. It is one of the various characters that GTO picks up, and um, he's a fun guy. Let me bring this microphone slightly closer so that I may speak at you. I sure, did talk to you. I also didn't talk about the hillbillies sort or of the the rednecks how they're they're in the South Carolina. Kind of down or whatever, right after, kind of the, the day after they fixed GTO's carburetor and GTO gets him out of a, a pretty bad mess.
1: There are some hillbillies that come over and I always wonder if y'all were hippie and, and not hillbillies, these are rednecks. This is a nice looking kid, clean looking kid, very conservative, very uh,
0: GOP motherfucker, if you can dig that. And he's like, We was wondering if y'all were hippies. Um, and it, it
1: seems like, you know, based on, on movies, apparently drifters are like an issue. I wouldn't know. I just live in a major metropolitan area and there's plenty of beggars and homeless
0: people all over the place. But based on Rambo, this has to be kind of fact. And, uh, they're about to fuck these boys
1: up and GTO starts selling them on this, like,
0: Oh, I take care of these boys
1: myself. Uh, Danny over here is married to, to Karina, and, you know, this is his, like, dumb brother or something. And driver and mechanic kind of go with it. Lori went over to play, like, the pinball machine or whatever, singing fucking Rolling Stones
0: like an idiot. Not like an idiot, she doesn't know. Uh, it's just, you know. Maybe she blew up the spot is what it was. Out of innocence more than anything. Yeah, he, uh... He kind of gets them out of that. They were about to get fucked up. I remember the dude did. Uh, he he kind of ends the conversation with, "Sure did talk at you.
1: Sure did talk at you, right?" If my fucking watch beeped, I don't even care. I'm not
0: gonna. I'm
1: not gonna fix that. I'm not gonna edit it out. You'll get both both takes of that. And G T L tells him, "Sure did see you," and he's like, "Full." Um, used car salesman, and it is so slimy and gross, but I realize that he used his power for good, but also, like, um, who does that power work on, right? Does it only work on those seeking power or feeling in power? Because my favorite character, my favorite fucking character in the whole goddamn movie is a legit, straight, stereotype, textbook hippie that he picks up. And I'm, I must have taken some fucking note on what he said.
0: Because holy shit, man. Yeah. So that was in, in Arkansas, right? Where they met the good old boys. And um, he picks up this
1: fucking for real hippie and the dude does not give a fuck about anything. The dude is like a straight up nihilist, And it's just hilarious right and gto gets like the weird vibe from him because gto usually kind of gets ignored or whatever but the hippie's like oh man that's awesome but like not giving a shit like almost sarcastically and he's kind of like you do you man and gto's like i'm getting i'm getting sick and tired of creeps coming off the road and putting me on you putting me on and i don't even know what that means what does putting me on even mean i don't know i'm genuinely confused that's kind of like in the matrix when Neo's fighting Morpheus and and Neo tells him, I know what you're trying to do. I don't know what he's trying to do. Do you know? Because I don't know. I don't know what the fuck he's trying to do. Because Morpheus has to explain it to him. He goes, I'm
0: trying to free your mind. I don't fucking know what he's trying to do. Why is that line in the script? I don't know. But GTO gives him that whole putting me on thing. And the hippie's just like, stop the car.
1: And GTO's like, what do you mean stop the car? And he's like, I said stop the car. And he's like, what? Stop the car, I mean take your foot off the gas and pull over. I want to get off this machine. And that's like the first time where GTO is actually at a loss for words. When somebody would just fucking, was just like, fuck you. Yeah, there was also another interesting part where GTO picks up an old lady and a young girl. And the young girl's actually Monty Hellman's daughter. He ends up going out of his way to take them to a cemetery. The old woman is clearly
0: traumatized by the death of the young girl's parents. And the young girl's just silent. She doesn't know what to do. She's very young, you know, maybe like four years old. And he takes them to the cemetery, and he takes
1: them back. And it's like the only nice thing that he does, and that's the only time that he says, Ma'am, I'm sorry for your loss, and how he expresses any kind of real... Or potentially real even, you don't know. Maybe he's just a greeting card,
0: and maybe he He's like a, a weird emotional chameleon. I don't know, man. The character of GTO is so fucking wild. I didn't give you spoiler warning or anything and not a lot
1: happens in the movie. It, it, it's deceptively slow. You might be like, oh I'm gonna look at my phone for a second and you missed something important that had no dialogue attached to it, like that
0: can easily happen in this movie but I definitely think everyone should watch it just pay attention to it 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 is
1: deserving of that and it makes sense why it made no fucking money there was no advertising and it was just a wildly different movie than an adventure road movie road race it's
0: not cannibal run far fucking from it yeah GTO uh is, is a really weird character So Yeah, it's just it's a thing. A vibe. I'm leaving for real this time though. This is time number three, I think, that I show up. Time number four, maybe. But you know what they say. Repetition legitimizes